Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Adjua Smalls-Monte. Dr. Smalls-Monte is a physician scientist and writer. She is currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, where she practices emergency psychiatry. Prior to her career in medicine, she conducted HIV immunology research for many years at several institutions, including the National Institutes of Health and the University of Oxford. As a contributor to the ABC News Medical Unit and on-air expert for Black News Channel, she writes and speaks about COVID public health measures and mental health. Her new co-authored book is Anjali the Brave, All About Vaccines, where readers join Anjali on an inspirational journey as she learns about how vaccines work to keep us safe and healthy and about the amazing scientists who created them. In the episode, Dr. Smalls-Monte shares tons of insights about the COVID vaccine for kids, touching on its efficacy, safety, availability, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Smalls Monte. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Smalls-Monte. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I know you have a very, uh, in, I don't know, not I wouldn't say complicated, but complex background. You are uh, involved in a lot of different things. I know you're a scientist, doctor, psychiatrist, and author. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what led to your interest in those different fields? Sure. So I grew up in the D.C. area, um, and I wanted to be an elementary school teacher for the longest time. But then September 11th happened, and right after that, in the D.C. area, we had the anthrax scare, where there was um, anthrax particles being mailed out through the mail. And that was a really scary time. I remember opening envelopes um, outside carefully because, you know, unfortunately someone did die from this. So 
that got me thinking a little bit more about science. And I was also getting more interested in science during high school during that time. So at that same time of the anthrax scare going on, there's a radio program that I love to listen to. And they were telling the stories about different scientists like William Gorgas and Walter Reed, Carlos Finley, that had discovered how to treat and um, prevent the spread of yellow fever and malaria. The program's called Your Story Hour. It's a Christian radio drama. So, you know, when I heard those stories about those scientists, I was like, I want to be just like them. So, I started looking for colleges um, that focused on science, ended up going to college. And during my college years, I did research um, in a lab that focused on HIV for um, all four years there. And then I also decided not only do I want to be a scientist, but I think I also want to be a doctor as well. So what I'm researching, I can apply it, try to you know, make people's lives better because, and and when you're doing research, you're kind of at the bench with a pipette sometimes, and then sometimes you want more of a human interaction. So I decided to apply to MD PhD programs, ended up getting both my MD and my PhD or DPhil as it's called from Oxford. Um, and for my graduate research, I did HIV um, immunology research as well. And so I go back to medical school. I'm thinking I am going to be an infectious disease doctor. And then I say I got distracted by psychiatry. Um, Just love that rotation. And that's what I ended up pursuing. So I have enjoyed and loved the work that I do as a psychiatrist. And primarily I'm doing emergency psychiatry, which means um, if you come into the emergency room and you have a psychiatric need, I'm the doctor that sees you. And New York actually has a lot of um, psychiatric emergency rooms or CPEPs as we call them in the city because there are so many people with psychiatric needs. So I work in um, those settings. And then how I got into writing was the pandemic hit, um, had a little bit more time, and I wanted a way that I could communicate with others about, um, you know, science, public health. People were reaching out to me, asking me questions, asking me to give talks about science and mental health, just how to survive the pandemic. And so I reached out to ABC just saying, hey, can I work with your medical unit? Um, I find that they have a lot of uh, good reporting. So I started working on projects with them. And a little bit later, I was thinking, okay, I'm writing for adults, um, but how can I talk to children? And that's where the idea for a children's book that I uh, recently wrote, Anjali the Brave, all about vaccines came from, you know, just me and another um, work colleague talking about um, how to get the message out to children um, about the vaccine that was coming out at that time just for adults. So that's how I went from wanting to be a scientist, being a scientist to a psychiatrist to a writer. Wow. Um, do you, were you in school for longer than somebody who would pursue, let's say just the MD track or yeah, was it about that? Yeah. Cause it sounds like you were in school forever. <laughs> I was, I was, I was a student okay. for a long time. So really, um, my, uh, graduate degree, my PhD took about four years and then medical school was four years. So, um, 
Yeah, I, it felt like I was going to be a student forever. And then you do residency <laughs> training, which is, um, you know, you still are working under the supervision of a senior doctor. So that's still training. But now I'm out on my own and, um, you know, doing what I love. Wow, that's great. So what message do you hope readers get from Anjali the Brave? I think there are like two uh, messages. One really would be an appreciation for vaccines um, and the scientists who made them. Vaccines have been really helpful in keeping us healthy for so many years. I mean, a hundred years ago, many children died in infancy because of diseases that now we don't fear anymore um, because we have vaccines like polio or um, measles, things like that. So I think that um, was is one message I want to help people remember. Also, there are so many different people that have contributed to uh, development of vaccines from many different nations, both men and women. And these people are highlighted in our books. So just um, to appreciate the worldwide effort in health as we know it. And then also, I think just from a scientific standpoint, I want people to understand how they work, because sometimes I think we we fear what we don't know. But if you know a little bit about what you um, have to do or what you might be getting, even it lessens that fear a little bit. And so children have told me, oh, I read your book and now I'm a little bit less scared of getting shots because you just have a little bit more of an understanding of why you're doing something. So I imagine kids get that message to kind of not fear vaccines from the book, but I feel like adults could use that message as well. <laughs> a lot of adults. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, again, we have been getting shots for so many years, but I think whenever something is new, um, appropriately, sometimes we're wary, but I am hoping from the book, it reminds them of how helpful shots have been in the past. Right. Is it really frustrating to you? I mean, speaking as somebody who has done this number of years of schooling and so much intensive research yourself on vaccines, and you actually understand how to interpret the research, unlike the common lay person who's watching the news or saying they do their own research. I hear that all the time. Does that really kind of trigger you the whole I'm doing my own research line and I'm not getting the vaccine because I've done my own research. So it does give me pause. And I say, you know, I do think it's important for whatever you're trying to do, um, you know, in life to have an understanding of what that is. And even in medicine, when you go to the doctor, they say, maybe you should take this medicine there might be a healthy level of skepticism and you want to know more and you should ask some questions. But I just caution us um, to think about to what level of understanding will you get doing your own research? And that's why we have trusted people. Um, and you can still make the decision to do something or not do something that somebody advises. I mean, people, patients do that with me all the time. But, and even with me, myself, if a doctor recommends something, I'll think about it. Um, but I'm trusting that the information that they're giving me is good, correct information. Um, because there are other specialties where I don't know anything. And even all the research I do, 
I wouldn't understand it well enough to make a really educated decision. I'm not a mechanic. Um, if I had a problem with a car, I would have no idea really how to fix it. And I could look things up online, but for me to just say, I'm going to make a definitive decision about what to do with my car and try to fix it um, would be foolhardy. Right. That's a, that's a good analogy to think about. And I think the issue is a lot of times when you're doing your own research, the way our news and social media and really everything is set up now is we kind of live in these silos where we're only maybe getting one opinion or we're reading things that have the same opinion and kind of emphasize what we want to believe. And I think there's even a psychological principle where you, um, what is it? I forget which bias it is, but where you just believe anything that supports your side, but then anything that doesn't support your side, you tune out or somehow fix to fit how it could support your side. And so it's just, I think in this age of COVID, especially and when we're trying to get the world vaccinated as much as possible, it's frustrating as somebody who is vaccinated and is really pulling for everybody to get these vaccines to hear people saying, oh, I did all my own research, because it's probably research in a silo and not not hearing other opinions. Would you agree with that? Often, yes. I, I find that information that's presented to me online is very catered to what my searches have been on before, what my interests are. Um, it's amazing how much our computers know about us. And so um, you have to deliberately search for a broad um, base information that is um, very factual. So again, I think people can do research. And if you're making your decisions based on good information, then that's fine. Just like people go to many different specialists sometimes to get different opinions and then they make a decision, that's okay, whether it's for the vaccine um, or not, since we're talking about that, um, that's understandable. But I think it's just important to know where you're getting the information from that is a trusted source. Something else that has been annoying to me is that as the pandemic was rolling out, even top experts like Dr. Fauci, I mean, everybody was just kind of trying to figure out what was going on. And the CDC was giving recommendations based on what they knew. And then sometimes they would learn more information as what happens when you research or there's more science available to you. And then you change your recommendation. But then people use that is a reason to just kind of discredit anything the CDC or Dr. Fauci says, because it's like, oh, well, they told us one thing, but they were wrong. So, you know, we shouldn't believe anything they say. And that's just been mind boggling to me because, I mean, you're dealing with something you've never dealt before in this pandemic. So, of course, you're going to have to kind of course correct as you go. Yeah, I think we see that. Um, we saw that happen. And that often, quite frankly, happens a lot and medicine, you know, there were times right. hundreds of years ago where you were told not to wash, where they didn't believe in germs and like people didn't wash their hands. Now we know like germs are transmitted by our hands. And so as our understanding of things change, we're going to have new recommendations. Uh, so I don't think we should completely, you know, discount someone or an agency because one recommendation um, 
that they had before may not be the new best recommendation that we would have now if they were acting in good faith based on the evidence that they had at that time. And so for me, I, I see it as um, the CDC, FDA, whatever, they were all doing what they could with the information that they had at the time. And, you know, medicine, science is always evolving. Yeah. And thank God for that. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. Like you said, I'm glad we have new science that suggests that hand washing can prevent us from so many diseases. And I'm glad we're not still doing a lot of the practices they were doing medically in the Middle Ages. And, you mm-hmm. know, science has evolved and that's an mm-hmm. incredible thing to celebrate. Um, but I guess when it's all happening so fast and then you mix in everybody's fear and everybody's trapped at home, maybe with small children and they're at their wits end. I mean, there's a lot of kind of passions and strong feelings flying. So you want accurate information. You want to know exactly what to do, but sometimes that's not always possible. You just, you kind of have to adapt and kind mm-hmm. of roll with, with new science. Like that's a good, that's a good skill to have. I agree. Yeah. What is, I'd love to kind of tackle, cause I think most adults at this point who are going to get vaccinated are probably vaccinated. I'd say, I don't know if this is correct, but probably the adults now who have not been vaccinated are probably not going to get vaccinated. Maybe a few will change their minds, but I think it's been around long enough for adults that we've got the majority of us vaccinated who are on board with it. But I know they're rolling out vaccines for kids now of different ages. So what is the current status of the COVID vaccine for kids? Right now, the COVID vaccine is available for kids that are six months and older. And that just happened as of um, last month, June. And that is amazing. It's a really huge feat, again, that we even have a COVID vaccine this quickly. Um, But that is now available for this very young age group is really good. Uh, There are two vaccines available for them. There's a Pfizer um, BioNTech vaccine and then the Moderna vaccine. Okay. And are they similar to the adult one where the Pfizer you need, or actually both of those, you need a couple, right? It was the Johnson and you just needed one. Yeah, so they're a little bit different. Um, and I'm going to talk more so towards about the age group that was just approved. Um, so essentially six months to five years. Um, if you're getting the Pfizer vaccine, that's three shots for that young group, um, given um, the first two shots are given three weeks apart. And then the third shot is given eight weeks after the second shot. And that um, vaccine dose is one tenth of the adult dose. And then the Moderna vaccine um, is one-fourth of the adult dose, and it's only two shots that are given four weeks apart. Mm. And then is there any difference in terms of efficacy of both, or are they both pretty great? So in the clinical trial, there were um, differences. Um, For the Pfizer vaccine, it was around um, 80% uh, prevention of symptomatic infection from the Omicron variant. And then with the Moderna vaccine, um, it appears to be a little bit less, but that does not mean that it is inferior. I think the efficacy was somewhere um, in the 50, like around 50, 51% for six months to two years, and then a little bit lower for uh, two years to um, five years. However, the biggest thing to remember is that 
they were measuring how well the vaccine prevented symptomatic infection. So even if it only was 5%, well, not 5%, but let's say 30, 50% in preventing symptomatic infection, the biggest thing to realize um, and to know is that the vaccine was effective in preventing um, hospitalization and death in mm-hmm. all the kids. You know, no no children died in the clinical trial and, um, you know, pre- it prevented hospitalizations. And that's the biggest goal of the vaccines um, and vaccines in general. You know, it's not to 100% prevent infection. It's just that when you get infected, your body is able to fight the disease. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very effective in that way. Is that was similar, right? With the adult version, wasn't the Pfizer a little bit more effective just, than the Moderna? Yeah, it just was like a smidge better. But again, you're working in clinical trials, optimal uh, um, conditions, um, and then the endpoints that each of the companies is measuring is slightly different. So if they were cons- um, if they were tested in the same trials, same exact conditions, then you can better say, oh, one's better than the other. But again, all of the vaccines were very effective in preventing against hospitalization and death um, or very serious illness, which is what you really want to. And so the COVID vaccine is still proving to be very effective, even with the Omicron variant coming, BA4, BA5, that is now... um, you know, able to infect people, even if you have been vaccinated, people are still, a majority of people are not getting sick to the point that they have to be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Are both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for kids, are they pretty widely available? They are. Um, your drugstores like CVS, Walgreens, they should have it. Some doctor's offices may have them. And I think some states are relying more on the individual doctor's offices to carry them, but they are widely available. Unfortunately, not that many kids are getting them. We've only had about 300,000 or so um, children from, you know, the six to five, six months to five year age group vaccinated. So that's quite a low number, but it is available to all. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I don't have kids yet. So I guess I didn't know that, that they were widely available because I just haven't heard of a ton of kids getting vaccinated. So I assumed it was just because they weren't widely available, but you're saying they are, people just aren't giving them to their kids. Yeah. I think uh, there was definitely a rush when we um, last year to get the vaccine because, you know, people really were getting very sick, dying, especially um, older individuals, you know, and so um, you wanted to get that to protect yourself. But even for slightly younger people, young adults, a vaccine was almost a ticket out to be able to go out into the world to do things, to go to a restaurant, to go to a gym class, to to fly, to do something. So um, I think that kind of um, propelled people to get the vaccine then. And, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about it when it first came out, because again, it was a huge feat that we got a vaccine in such a little time, like within a year. That's unprecedented. Right. 
Um, and then that's also fueled some people's skepticism of, oh, we made this too quick. But then if you think about all of the top vaccine makers, I don't know what you call those people, but <laughs> in the world are focusing on this one project. It's not mm-hmm. even just in the United States. Everybody in the world is being affected by this. So all hands on deck, let's get this made. So it's not necessarily that it was rushed or it's faulty science. It's just that we came together as a world to focus on this one thing and got it done very quickly. Yeah. I mean, to that, I tell people that SARS has been around since 2002, 2003. And scientists have been researching how to make a vaccine for uh, SARS since that time. So it it isn't anything new. The vaccine technology uh, for the mRNA vaccines have been developed over decades. And now we're here with this coming along. People were sharing information in the scientific community, like you said, all hands on deck. But then one thing that the federal government did was step in and give a lot of funding to the drug companies to say, look, you have this drug candidate, this vaccine candidate that looks pretty well. We're going to start manufacturing these vaccines while you're doing the clinical trials, which typically doesn't happen because that's a huge liability for a company to make to make medication. You're not sure how it'll work, but you just want to. Um, so you're, you're going to wait till all your trials are done. But they, the federal government started manufacturing vaccines. So once the results of the trials were available, they could quickly distribute the vaccine. And then you had many different stages of the clinical trials happening at the same time. You normally have phase one, two, and three that happened in succession, but um, these were happening simultaneously. So no corners were cut. A lot of things happened in tandem um, at the same time, and a lot of money and investment of time, um, intellectual um, talent, financial resources to make the vaccine available so quickly. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. I've read some hesitation from parents to get their kids vaccinated against covid because most children have mild symptoms or no symptoms. Um, So first of all, is that true that most children have mild or no symptoms? And then secondly, if that is true, why is it so important to vaccinate children against COVID, not just adults? So, you know, you you actually are right. Others, people are right. Most of the kids have mild infections when they do get COVID. And that's great. Um, There are other diseases that target primarily children and they get really sick, like polio. However, um, 
it's important that children also get vaccinated, not only to protect themselves, but the people that are around them that might be more vulnerable should they catch COVID. So if you have an elderly parent that the grandparent, grand, um, grandparent or someone that's immunocompromised that lives in um, the same household as a child, that child can spread COVID to the, the older person unknowingly if that person is vaccinated or not vaccinated, you know, because, you know, vaccine immunity wanes. So I think just to slow the spread is important that everyone gets vaccinated. And I think this was more evident to me during the uh, last holiday, because when the first Omicron wave hit, um, December, January, many of my friends find throughout the pandemic that had children ended up getting COVID from their children that were um, catching it, you know, maybe from daycare or whatever, but they could all pinpoint it to my child as as the vector for infection. So yeah, you know, I, I think it's just important and the, you know, just to prevent spread. The second big reason is that when kids get sick, it can be serious. Um, we're not seeing as much long COVID in kids, but what they can get is um, multi- um, system inflammatory syndrome, MISC, and that can in fact affect their heart, their lungs, their the brain, skin, eyes, um, you know, and that is a really bad um, outcome of having COVID. That can happen. So I think, you know, you don't want to have the after effects of this disease if you don't have to. And then for the kids that were actually sick in the hospital, um, from COVID, a majority of them were not vaccinated. So the vaccines do um, work, you know, and the older kids, when the vaccine was available, the vaccines do work um, in preventing that hospitalization and death. I read that myocarditis, is that how you say it? Myocarditis? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is inflammation of the heart and a very rare side effect that has been reported in some young people after receiving both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. What do you say to parents who have concerns about that? So I say that the incidence of that happening was pretty rare. And this is a risk that you can have with many of the vaccines that we have accepted and get today. Um, it mostly occurred in young adolescent males, like around 16 to 25 years of age and after their second dose of the vaccine. Um, but the good thing is that a lot of people recover on their own without any uh, special treatment. But even if you do need special medications and treatments, that can be offered. So people do survive that. But then again, you can also get myocarditis from getting COVID. Um, mm. And you're more likely to get it from COVID than the vaccine. You know, there are so few cases of the myocarditis um, due to the vaccine and um, you have a much higher risk from the actual infection. Oh, interesting. So again, if, some, if you're in this kind of news silo and somebody's saying this thing that kids can get, this inflammation of the heart, I mean, that sounds scary, from the vaccine, they're probably only focusing on that if they're making the case against vaccines, not the, not the fact that you can get it. It's more, you're more likely to get it if you get COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just choosing which risk do you want to take, but you have less risk of getting that 
um, particular um, condition um, from the vaccine than you do from the virus. And you said you usually heal from it. Does everybody heal from it or most people heal from it? Most. Um, you can die from it. That is, you definitely can. But that is very um, rare. And so um, I, I would say, again, your risk of dying from myocarditis, um, if you go unvaccinated and happen to get catch COVID, um, it, the full brunt of the infection is higher um, from the actual virus. I see. Aside from myocarditis, are there other possible side effects that we've seen in children? And if so, are they similar to or different from possible side effects from typical vaccines that kids get? Most of the side effects that kids have from this vaccine are like the side effects they get from any other vaccine. Um, mostly soreness at the site of injection, headache, fatigue, you know, that lasts for a day or so. That was more so what uh, children experience. Mm, okay. So if they're vaccinated against all the other things they get vaccinated against as babies before mm-hmm. going to school, then similar, similar thing here, similar risks. Yep. Yep. Okay. What are some other top myths that you've heard from parents, particularly in regard to vaccinating their kids against COVID? I actually think we covered a lot of them. You know, a lot of people will say the kids don't get sick. It's a new Mm -hmm. vaccine. I want to see how it does. I want to wait. But now I'm like, well, you know, two thirds of the world population have gotten um, the COVID vaccine. So you have billions of people that have gotten it. I don't know how much more data you need to say that, um, you know, the immediate risks are, you know, you might be missing something from all the people that have gotten the, the vaccine. What happens in the future? Of course, we don't know, but I'm also thinking, do I know of any long-term consequences from uh, vaccines in general? No, we don't have that. There's myocarditis, but I think some people I, I have said have talked about fertility. Um, yeah, I've heard but, that one too. Yeah, and I, I've actually more so heard, um, maybe not parents, but young women um, say that to me. And based on the nature of how the vaccine works, it, it wouldn't stay in your cells. It, it can't um, affect the eggs, um, you know, of females and things like that. So I I think that, um, that's important for people to understand, um, that this vaccine does not stay in your body, hang around, do something to you. I kind of would explain it as in the movie Mission Impossible, you know, uh, Tom Cruise's character, character gets instructions like, this is your mission, um, and then, you know, sh- should you choose to accept, blah, 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 and then it self-destructs. Well, that is kind of how the mRNA vaccines work. They go into your body, give your body the instructions on how to build its defenses. The body can do what it wants to do. They try to build those defenses, build the neutralizing antibodies that we all hear about. And then the mRNA um, degrades. Um, it really doesn't hang around to affect your cells. That is so fascinating. 
Especially, I've heard all the science of the mRNA vaccines explained, but how you just described it, I mean, that is so cool. Oh, yeah. Well, I love action movies, but also... Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I think that's, I, I get it. Like you, you are, you should be um, critical and wary of what you're putting in your body, whether it's a shot, a medication, foods that we eat, you know, all those different types of things. But I think just understanding what they do is important. And so that's why, you know, for the mRNA vaccines, that's why we have to keep them on ice, very, you know, temperature controlled. I don't know if you were um, don't know if you remember how that was a really big deal when the vaccines came out. Um, just the special trucks that they had to be transported in um, because mRNA is fragile. So it's not hanging around in your body, but it's just long enough for your um, cells to read the instructions and to know what to do and start building the defenses. Wow. That's, that's really cool. What's your advice to parents who have kids who are still not eligible for a vaccine? So I guess that would be under six months. I would say in trying to keep your kids safe, the best thing that you can do is keep you, yourself safe. Um, again, the parents and those that are in the same household as the child or are engaging with the child a lot, whether that's uh, their provider is at a daycare school, um, they can get vaccinated because the less chance you have of getting sick, the less chance your child has of getting sick. And then if your child is in an environment with new people, a lot of people, feel okay to ask masks. I have, I know people that they have kids around and they're just like, can you wear a mask? People you know, will ask you to sanitize your hands. So that's okay. That's your child. You want to protect them. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when my niece was born during COVID, we all wore masks. I mean, we weren't even vaccinated yet. So everybody wore masks around her all the time, mm -hmm. um, just even being in the same room. And I mean, I guess we were all wearing masks in general, even if there wasn't a baby there. But um, then I was around another baby recently and we had masks on. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's like old times. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to this. I think we're all we all have a mask with us now. Right. We I mean, there's one in my purse at all times. If I don't have one, I feel like I don't have my wallet or something. I'm just very yeah. used to having it. So I think, you know, people are going to be fine with that if you just say, can you wear a mask? Yeah. Mask up around people that are more vulnerable. I mean, right now, as we know, the. Um the circulating Omicron variants, the BA4 and the BA5 right now are um, able to infect people a little bit more efficiently, even if you had the uh, vaccine or even if you had COVID infection before. So um, if you're around people that are elderly, immunocompromised, I think it's a good idea if you're going to be in a very tight quarter, you're not living with them, um, to wear a mask around them to, you know, also prevent them from possibly being exposed. Because um, still, it's still here and we can still do something so simple as wearing a mask and it won't be forever. You know, we had a pandemic before we got through it. If you look at very old pictures, um, they were wearing masks like it's not going to be forever. But for right now, while we're in the midst of it, we just want to. Um, try to all get through this as best as we can. Right. I'm curious your thoughts on boosters. So I had the double Pfizer vaccine and then a booster. Do you think that most adults will be 
getting a second booster sometime soon, like end of summer or fall? I I think so. I know there are plans to uh, make a new uh, vaccine that is more tailored to the Omicron variant, and then even one that's more tailored to BA4 and BA5. Um, so I definitely think there will be a recommendation to get a booster in the fall. What I think is a question right now is whether adults under 50 that are generally you know, healthy that aren't immunocompromised, whether they will be recommended to get a second booster. And quite frankly, I think it's a good idea to um, recommend that. I know the FDA is probably going to look at that soon um, from what, you know, the news has been reporting. But, you know, a lot of people that have had the vaccine that have been, um, like we said, uh, vaccinated or that didn't get the infection or had a natural infection are getting reinfected. And um, right now we have vaccine that is able to boost you a little bit. So why not get that, especially if you are vulnerable or you're around more people that are vulnerable just to stop the continued spread, continue evolution of this virus. And honestly, um, if we're getting a new vaccine, the um, current vaccines are going to be, you know, might go to waste. So why let it go to waste when it can do good right now. Hmm. So I, I would be, um, I'm hopeful that it'll be recommended for, you know, younger adults to get a second booster because it, it really is spreading. I see it now, even though I'm not a doctor that deals with um, treating people with respiratory infections in the hospital. When I'm in the ED as a psychiatrist, I just stop, I can look around and I'm seeing more people come in and respiratory distress. You know, it's spreading again. The numbers are rising. Um, and, you know, we, we want to prevent it. And I've seen young people as well, very, very sick from COVID. And that breaks my heart. Right. I heard, I don't know. I mean, I might have just heard this from a friend or something, or I might have made this up, but <laughs> I don't know if this is based in science. But um, I heard rumor, I guess you would say, of at some point, it may just be like we go and get our yearly flu shot in the fall and a COVID booster along with it. Do you feel like that is kind of a likely trajectory of where things are going? The way it's uh, things have been now with the vaccines having waning immunity, I wouldn't be surprised if we did have to get yearly boosters. But again, the um, pharmaceutical companies are trying to create a vaccine that has more longevity. So Maybe it's something that you get every couple of years, like some of the other um, shots that we get, like Tdap or something. So, um, but if we if we do, that's okay. You know, in healthcare, we have to, you know, for our work, we have to get a flu vaccine every year. Um, you know, just to keep ourselves and our patients healthy. And many people, um, I know that aren't even in healthcare, just do. You know, so it just becomes part of part of our day-to-day, just one of the other medical things that we have to do. Yeah, for sure. When we went to get our, I think it was our booster, my husband and I went to a local drugstore and we were sitting there and he was looking over 
a list of different vaccines. I think they were having you check off if you'd had anything or maybe if you needed something. And he was like, should I get another one? As if like, just throw it into the shopping cart. But it was funny. Just what other one could I add on to this? Should, should I be getting something else? But he only needed the one, but it's good, I guess, to stay on top of those things. And um, like you mentioned, there's other vaccines that you need to stay uh, updated with as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So to me, when I think of investment, I think of what am I doing now to build for my future? So I kind of think about when it comes to health, what can I do right now to make sure I stay healthy in the future? Right now we're talking about vaccines. So of course, I'm going to say, you know, if you can do something to prevent an infection, that's good. And right now that's a vaccine. Um, I, I, I really do believe in what they can do um, just from, you know, all the research that I've done in the past and from what we have seen for hundreds of years um, in history, um, how vaccines have been very effective in preventing so much illness and death. So I I think making a health investment is to, um, you know, where it comes to this pandemic is possibly, you know, is getting a vaccine. Um, And then, you know, I'm also a psychiatrist, so I'll throw in there for mental health. It's very important to be cognizant of how you're doing in various situations day to day, make sure you're resting well, taking a break, connecting with others, um, getting outside, getting exercise, fresh air, eating healthy, you know, all the things that we're told to do, but they really do affect how you're um, feeling from day to day. So um, I will say trying to make healthy choices and prioritizing Rest is also very important for your future health as well. Yeah, 100%. Where can listeners follow and find you and buy your book? So they can find me um, on Instagram. I'm Dr. Ajwa. And then my book, you can purchase at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, any other retailer where ebooks are sold. Uh, you can also find it on the website www.anjalithebrave.com. So um, yeah, check it out. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of those places in the show notes so they're easily clickable. And I just want to thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your wisdom with my audience. And I look forward to staying connected. Thank you so much for having me, allowing me to speak today um, and for the work that you do with your podcast and spreading the message of health, good health. Oh, for sure. I'm happy to do it. It's really fun for me. I feel like I'm getting another college education and talking to experts like you. It's the highlight of my week. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much. That's great. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition 
and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast. 